The January 6th committee has evidence to make a criminal referral against Trump to the DOJ. But will they make one? Jared Kushner becomes an investment manager and gets $2 billion from the Saudi Arabian Sovereign Wealth Fund. And here's what's hidden in that headline. Steve Mnuchin gets $1 billion. I was going to say that, too. That was hidden. (laughs) No one's talking about Mnuchin. No one's talking about Mnuchin got one billion. Hold on, let me finish the headlines. Texas charges Lizelle Herrera for taking abortion medication. They charge her with murder. The charges are then dropped. Donald Trump endorses Dr. Oz and it drives the GOP crazier. And we have the former commanding general of the United States Army in Europe, Ben Hodges, will be joining the podcast. And when I think, Brett, of that Trump endorsement of Dr. Oz, and as we talk about some of these other GOP Senate candidates and political candidates, can I just think of the Wizard of Oz quote when Dorothy (laughs) talks to the scarecrow and goes, how do you talk if you don't have a brain? Well, some people without a brain do an awful lot of talking, don't they? Says the Scarecrow. (laughs) This is the Midas Touch Podcast. Ben, Brett, and Jordy joining you today. How are you guys doing? How does your brain work? How does does this, the connections you make? I I love it, though. That is unbelievable. How does my brain work? I talked about Dr. Oz. Wizard of Oz. Wizard of Oz. (laughs) Brainless people. You know what? Ben's brain is QAnon adjacent. He's like the Charlie Day, like making the yes. connections on the board. Pepe Sylvia, Pepe Sylvia, Pepe Sylvia. <laughs> I mean, I think Dr. Oz, Wizard of Oz is an easy one. And we have an incredible, incredible guest. I mean, we have the former army commander in Europe who's going to be talking with us about the current Gosh. status of Ukraine. I mean, who's booking these guests? Jordy, I don't know. This, this is your opportunity to know. take credit, Jordy. I don't know. No, we don't <laughs> take credit. We don't we don't take credit here. It's a team effort here at Minus Touch. Well, let's get into it right away. I mean, let's talk about this Jared Kushner $2 billion investment fund that he has. Who knew Um, that he he was such an investor? Well, first off, let's break it down for people what this $2 billion is. This isn't like Saudi Arabia gave Jared Kushner $2 billion, okay? They gave his fund $2 billion. Okay. okay. It's the most ridiculous thing in the world. Jared Kushner is not an investment manager. You know, he did real estate, I suppose, from his daddy's money before he got into the White House. He's a trust fund kid with no real qualifications. His dad bought his way into Harvard. I think they they put money into a library. But Kushner never had qualifications for anything. Everything he touched kind of turned to the opposite of gold. He was the Mierdis touch as well with Trump, but he fits right in. But it's funny, his fund is called Affinity. Just when you look, A-F-F-I-N-I-T-Y is the fund that he's created. If you look up the definition of affinity, one of it is a relationship, especially by marriage, as opposed to blood ties. <laughs> so it is a funny definition for <laughs> Ben's doing a deep dive today on definitions. Doing a deep dive into he's cultural go. references. So anyway, the sovereign fund of Saudi Arabia, which is basically the uh, slush fund that uh, Mohammed bin Salman has, MBS has, um, they put $2 billion into affinity. Now, as the investment manager, 
usually the fees that an investment manager gets is about 2% of the fund. It's possibly you get more than 2% of a fund, but usually 2% is the management fund, which that goes directly to Jared. And usually the way these funds work is that the fund manager, the general partner, will then often get about 20%, sometimes more, sometimes less, but usually 20% of profits. And then what does the fund invest in? Well, the fund can have an investment thesis, but given that this fund hasn't existed before, the fact that a sovereign wealth fund's putting $2 billion into this fund, just to give you by reference, like when funds create, like when funds start like this, usually a, someone who has no fund experience. They start off maybe with a $50 million fund or a $100 million fund. This is someone with incredible banking experience though. Like maybe they were a top banker at a major bank. They were managing billions of dollars, but they go out to the market and the market usually says to them, all right, we'll give you a hundred million to start accumulating from dozens of investors, not just one investor would never give a new person a hundred million dollars. So maybe they collect 5 million here, 2 million here. They put it together. It's their first fund. Can you show us that your fund works? And maybe the next fund is half a billion dollars. Maybe you work your way up like a billion dollar funds, a big deal. The fact that this one sovereign wealth group that MBS is giving $2 billion to Kushner billion. to invest, Two billion. And then what can they invest in anything? Like this could basically, be, they could invest in, you know, Truth Social. They can invest mm. in Trump endeavors. They can invest in anything, basically. And the Sovereign Wealth Fund advisors, the people who advise MBS, this was reported in the New York Times, said, What the hell are you doing? This he, Jared Kushner has no experience whatsoever. You can't put this amount of money. One, the PR risks are too high because people are going to talk about the conflicts of interest and the fact that literally Jared Kushner was like your main ally in the White House and gave you all of these perks and basically colluded with you as a foreign government, number one. Number two, he doesn't know what he's doing. You're probably going to lose your money. But look, what this is, can we say what it is? It's a quid pro quo. Yeah. Jared mm -hmm. Kushner and the Trump administration. Um, um, covered up for the murder by MBS of Khashoggi. Yeah, this isn't a quid pro quo as like, oh, they did me this small favor. I did them this small favor, so they're paying me back. I mean, Kushner had helped them, had defended MBS after the U.S. intelligence agencies concluded that he approved the 2018 killing and dismemberment of Jamal Khashoggi. And that's the Saudi columnist who wrote for the Washington Post, who was a resident of Virginia, who had criticized the Saudi kingdom's rulers. That is what they're paying him back for here. The killing and dismemberment of a Washington Post journalist who dared speak out against the Saudi kingdom. That is so twisted and so fucked up. And Ben, I just want to reiterate, you said that Kushner himself as a manager of this fund would get 2% of the fund like just yeah. himself. So that's like $40 million just right there off the top, which is insane. I mean, this is profiting off the office. This is corruption at the highest levels. And don't give me that Hunter Biden bullshit anymore when you have this going on. And Ben, I'm happy yeah. you called out in the beginning something that I haven't seen really other people talking about. When I was reading the article before, I was like, how has nobody mentioned this? That Steve Mnuchin, former Treasury Secretary, former Tre Treasury Secretary for Trump, also Mnuchin, got money. The, 
The one who held up the money with his the wife? One, the one who held up the money with the wife. Yeah, when they were doing the-, the They're PPP all loans. super villains. They really are. They really are. That picture, we'll pull it up now, is like one also like just the work, whatever. Anyway, and Mnuchin, also the guy who would take like the Air Force One, right? Wouldn't he take like Air Force One on like private vacations or something? Yeah. But he got $1 billion, which is sort of being overlooked since Kushner got $2 billion, all for being in the pockets of the Saudis. And the Saudi Arabia, MBS, this is the guy who a couple of years ago literally said, I've got Kushner in my pocket. He said, I've got Jared Kushner in my pocket. Well, Brett, the relationship dates back to even 2017 when Kushner and the crown prince, they're on a first name texting basis. Like they're like super informal with each other. And it's been reported that the crown prince, he gave Jared Kushner two swords, just gifted him two swords worth $48,000 just because they're buddies. Like this relationship is weird and it dates back to, tw- it's corrupt. $48,000, Jordy, that's like pocket change, Jordy. We're I know, talking, but I'm just We're saying. talking 2 billion. That's it. They got, uh, Kushner's got 48,000 in his pocket right now from, uh, for, from MBS. We think about though, you go back with like Watergate, you know, and how that was reported, you know, the Watergate scandal. It's like, we, we just learned today, you know, or, or this over, over the weekend that MBS, who said that the president's son-in-law is in my pocket, who helped cover up the murder of a Washington Post journalist, uh, invested $2 billion into a fund that is run by Jared Kushner, who has no experience. Also a billion dollars into a fund by Steve Mnuchin. So $3 billion just went into thank you to Trump administration officials. And you're right, Brett. The Steve Mnuchin part's not even talked about. Like it's that this is the not just corruption. Like, could you imagine if this took place in any other administration? And it doesn't. It it really doesn't. Which is why, and it's never happened. Which is why, though, the radical right wants to focus on trying to drag down people like Hunter and try to make these comparisons, which are not even close. Shut up with the hunter stuff because if if the hunter stuff bothers you even like like a lot this jared kushner thing that's admitted that's open that's obvious that's being this should it's hard to even put and and ben i know you spoke about this on legal legal af we don't have to do a deep dive on this but speaking about what's being highlighted by the media. Of course, we found out last week the text from Don Jr. on November 5th in stating his intentions to overthrow the results of the election before they even knew the results of the election, him texting with the chief of staff, Mark Meadows. That should be one of the biggest scandals ever that the president's son was saying, we control everything. We are able to overturn these results. And where did the New York Times have that article in their paper? They had it on page A15, 15, below the fold in a tiny little corner that read, text from Trump's son is said to plan on overturning the election. That's where they had that. That should be front page news. That should be the biggest story of a generation. It's like the media has lost all sense of what is important. And the weird thing is they're the ones writing these stories. Like I commend the journalists for writing those stories. And I know a lot of people have issues with Maggie Haberman, but she wrote this story and it's a very important story and she's one of their top journalists. So why are they not putting that on the front page? Why are they burying it on a 15. It's just so absurd to me. I think honestly, it comes down to the psychology of it all, where it's like they do, the Trump administration does all their criminality and their criminal activity in the open. They're not hiding anything. Not that other people are hiding things, but because it's so open and in your face, 
people might not assume that it's a crime, even though it should be the biggest story of the year. But here's where I would disagree with you there, Jordy. This is you actually one example of where it was. I being love hated. you to death. I love you. I love you. <laughs> I love you. Never literally the example of the contradict you where they were hiding it. The January 6th committee had to get it from the text messages. So your theory is not really accurate, but I get your point. But that should be a front page story. You know, even the fact that Trump's taking documents from, you know, classified documents and he's bringing him to Mar-a-Lago or that a federal federal judge ruled it's more likely than not that Donald Trump um, broke the law and engaged in obstruction like Every day there's another story that drops. We cover it at the top of our podcast. We cover it throughout the day on Midas Touch. But what CNN does focus on is, oh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, when she was going like this with her hands, that was actually those claps constitute an applause. Those, those, those claps were applause. Let's ignore the fact that she's out there saying that Zelensky should be overthrown, you know, 30 minutes later. Let's focus on whether her touching palms constituted applause versus claps. And let's try to fact check to Midas touch. I mean, the media has lost their damn mind. I mean, I still saw them talking about Will Smith yesterday when all this was going on. I'm like, you're really still doing a tape piece on Will Smith two weeks later. People need the, the news is there's a reason it's called like the fourth estate, like it is necessary and needed for a functioning democracy. And the media has completely lost their mind. And Brett, this article highlights it. This is uh, this is where the New York Times is treating this story. It's unbelievable. And what the, the Jared Kushner story, they maybe talk about it for a day. And then they won't talk about it anymore. Like, okay, cool, cool. Here you go, Jared. You get $40 million from a foreign government that you helped overthrow, uh, cover up a murder of an American journalist. Remember the Ginny Thomas story? Old news. Let's all forget about it. Let's not even talk about Ginny Thomas, the wife of a Supreme Court justice, trying to overthrow the United States government. Who cares? Big deal. Move on. Move on. No big deal. And as people talk about the January 6th committee now, though, you know, even the way the story is being reported is really missing the point of what about what January 6th committee is thinking about doing. And it just leaves people very confused. The January 6th committee has the evidence, obviously, and it's, you know, this has come out. We know, we know what, what a lot of the evidence is. We know that a federal judge, federal judge, has said that Donald Trump likely, more likely than not, engaged in obstruction of Congress and engaged in criminal activity in connection with the insurrection. The federal judge called it a coup in search of a legal theory. The question now before the January 6th committee, though, is in making a criminal referral. All a criminal referral is, is a letter. Because the oversight functions of Congress, they are not a criminal prosecutorial body. All they can do is make the referral. So as you've seen before, they made a referral for contempt of Congress of Steve Bannon and the DOJ acted on that referral. But there was a finding of contempt. Um, they also made referrals with Mark Meadows and Scavino and, you know, and a few others. The DOJ has not yet acted on those referrals. And one of the reasons they haven't is that at, at least someone like a Mark Meadows, as, uh, who was the chief of staff for Trump, worked in the executive branch of government. 
that there's at least a argument to be made of executive privilege, um, whether or not that's a valid one and probably is not a valid one because criminality is not protected and the scope of the conduct relating to the insurrection has nothing to do with presidential functions. The DOJ made a decision, hey, at least at this point, let's take Bannon down first. Let's prosecute Bannon. And then we could focus on next on these broader issues of executive privilege. So all a criminal referral means is after the D, after the January 6th committee makes its findings, no matter what, it's going to make its findings. And its findings will likely find that Trump engaged in criminal conduct. And they are going to lay those out one by one by one. The question is, is that just sent as a letter that says to the DOJ, do you, you know, prosecute it? The one thinking why you maybe don't do that is because the DOJ can prosecute him either way. And all that could happen by sending a letter to the DOJ is it gives another possible defense to Trump saying that it's a politicization of uh, of the process and that the DOJ is politicizing it because it was referred by the January 6th committee. The DOJ, whether or not it gets a referral, is going to make its decision independent to prosecute or not prosecute. So that's just the issue right there. And so I have the January 6th committee, though, will make its findings, though, that yeah. the DOJ can absolutely act on. Just the January 6th committee is not a prosecuting body. It's not what it's not what Congress does. And it's a bipartisan committee. Yeah. Yeah. It's I think that's one of the committee. It's one of the underlooked facts. Like the committee by all for all intents and purposes is run by Republicans. It's run by Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, which I don't think is, is spoken about enough. I feel a few different ways about this. I mean, we've said from the very beginning, we've told people, remember, this is a fact-finding committee. This right. is not a prosecutorial committee. Everybody is like, why aren't they arresting people? Why aren't they holding people again? That's not what they do. We've said that from the beginning. And if you think that that's what they do, then you've been misled by somebody. That's not what they do. Now, I, I, the reason I say I feel a couple different ways about this is because, A, I don't care if they make the referral or don't make the referral. I want the best chance of conviction, period, end of story. I don't want that to be muddied in any way, form, or fashion. Now, as far as the politicization of it all, I really don't buy that argument. Now, I, I don't think they need to make the referral. I don't think it's important for DOJ because DOJ is going to act regardless of, of what's going to happen. I just want to see justice. But I don't buy that argument just because they are going to say that it's politicized regardless, no matter what they are going to say that it's politicized. If they, they don't make the referral, then Trump will say, see, the DOJ, you're prosecuting me. Even the January 6th committee didn't refer right. me to you. Exactly. So they would just make that argument. So, so my overall thing is... Let's stop in all aspects. Let's stop worrying about what Trump may or may not do, what Republicans may or may not do, and do whatever you think is the right thing instead for the rule of law. Stop worrying about how they are going to take it because you've already seen they will take whatever you do and turn it and flip it to their political benefit. So you just need to follow the rule of the law. And if the best way to get a good outcome of all this is not to refer, then don't refer. But if the only reason that you're not going to refer is because you are scared of them using it against you in some political way, then I don't think you should take, I don't think you should be doing that. I don't think you should be worried about that. It's the same reason why if you need to take, if you need to subpoena somebody, 
and you're worried about if Republicans take control of the House or the Senate, that they are going to start subpoenaing you and weaponizing the government. Don't be afraid of what they are going to do. They are going to do what they're going to do regardless. This is your moment to act. This is your moment for action. And now, like I said, either way, I don't care. Here's what I want from the January 6th committee. I want them to deliver us the undeniable facts of mm-hmm. what happened that day, what preceded that day, and what happened in the aftermath of that day. I want them to find out the links of the conspiracy to Donald Trump and how he orchestrated this coup attempt. And then I want to see them put on a show with public hearings. I want to see fireworks. I want to see primetime hearings that just shock people in the detail of what everybody did. And then I want to see the DOJ prosecute, DOJ indict, DOJ prosecute. All that could happen without the referral. So as long as those things happen, I am happy. And I think all those things happening is important to the future of securing our democracy. I think the DOJ needs to act if America is to survive as a democracy. They need to indict everybody, including Donald Trump. On our Legal AF podcast this past weekend, we talked about, I agree with you, Brett. Uh, We talked about- That's a Brett rant and a half. Oh, no doubt. We what we talked about, though, for all the people saying Merrick Garland needs to move quicker, he needs to move quicker. I explained, I said, well, what just happened last week? Last week, we learned about Don Jr.'s text messages um, where he laid out the insurrection plan two days after the election. So I said, based on the theory of people saying Merrick Garland should have moved quicker. So you would have wanted a prosecution of Trump without that document? before that document emerges? Like, is that what you have wanted? As I explained, you don't just get to take the, you know, you shouldn't just take the bar exam without taking like law school classes. And anything that you do in life, you don't go to the last stage before doing the first stages. Like, like you have to do the things that to get to the last stage. And that's what Merrick Garland is doing. You know, whether he ultimately does prosecute Trump or not, and my hope is that he does and that all insurrectionists to the very highest levels need to be held accountable. But he's going through, Merrick Garland's going through the process that you would go through mm-hmm. if that is the end. That I can guarantee you. That is the way justice looks. I'll tell you the way justice doesn't look, though. And I keep telling people, look, this is the critical issue, one of our time, because it one of the most critical issues of our time, probably the most critical issue of our time, because it is what is right. It is what is it is horrible what's happening and people need to pay attention to it. And it's also going to be very important in what you do in 2022 and where our national and local elections go, because what the right radical right wing wants to do, which unfortunately is the right wing right now, is they want to ban contraception. They want to ban all abortions um, and they want to lock women and childbearing persons up and frankly, families up for contraception. But particularly women is that's their focus. Um, And they kind of jumped the gun in Texas uh, because the Texas law, SB8, the bounty hunter law that we've spoken about, where uh, there's civil fines and civil liability for anyone who has an abortion, for those who aid in a a bet abortion. Um, The law also has a trigger that if Roe v. Wade is overturned then abortions will be deemed illegal kind of immediately in Texas. And we know that there's a case before the Supreme Court 
Oral arguments were held several months ago, end of December, in Dobbs versus Mississippi is the case where Mississippi had a 15-week ban on abortion, which would be in violation of Roe v. Wade. And based on the oral arguments, at the very least, it appears the 15-week ban will be upheld. But it seems more directly that Roe v. Wade will probably be overturned. And in the questioning of Katanji Brown-Jackson, um, senators like Marsha Blackburn and others um, challenged the initial case of which Roe v. Wade is premised on and said that case was unconstitutional, which said that the right of contraception is uh, something that should be for the privacy of families and individuals and that the right to contraception should be, uh, you know, should be banned. Um, we have lots of Trump endorsed candidates who are running around the country right now, like the candidate in Alaska. Her name is uh, Kelly Chispaka. And when she was speaking mm -hmm. in Alaska too, she was asked, will we ban and criminalize contraception being sent in the mail? Um, and she said, yes, absolutely. We need to criminalize contraception in the mail. And so what happened in Texas is Lizelle Herrera, 26 year old, we don't have all of the facts, but took abortion medication, which induces an abortion, which is of course legal. The hospital that she went to for abortion related care, apparently in violation of HIPAA, uh, reported her medical information to the police um, and called upon the police to arrest her. The police arrested her. She was then charged with murder. She was held on a 500,000 bond in Star County Jail in Rio Grande City for, quote, causing the death of an individual by self-induced abortion. And that's where it stood going into the weekend. Then in this weekend, the district attorney, I believe the name is District Attorney Ramirez, um, said in a statement, it's clear that Ms. Herrera cannot and should not be prosecuted for the allegations against her. Although with this dismissal, Ms. Herrera will not face prosecution. It's clear to me that the events leading up to this indictment have taken a toll on her. And he says in the statements that it's not a criminal act in the state of Texas, and that's not where the law is. How did it even get that far where they're locking her up for, e even if they're going by that SB8 law, which is a civil violation. How does it even get to a point where you're locking somebody up for this and charging them with murder? As I said, it's leading into it. They jumped the gun. Like, But this is the point that I think everyone needs to take from this story. Although the ending of the story is, is that the district attorney Ramirez stepped in, did the right thing. Um, one, the pain and suffering that Lizelle Herrera will have for the rest of her life and the trauma that she faces is unimaginable. So you know, while she's not being prosecuted for her, it's not like this is a great day. This was one of the most horrific things that could ever happen to you. But here's the thing. What happened to Lizelle Herrera is something that's going to happen across the country soon. Yeah. And that's what's going to be allowed to take place. We are going to see Lizelle Herrera type prosecutions across the country. I believe after the Dobbs versus Mississippi ruling happens in the next 60 days or so, they will start arresting people and charging them with murder and sentencing them to life in prison, life in prison um, when Roe v. Wade is overturned. And during the 2020 election, we did an ad um, that 
focused on this issue. And again, we were told, oh, you're being hyperbolic. That's never going to happen in the United States. And the ad was a mother taking her daughter across state lines um, to get uh, an abortion in another state where it's legal. And the cop pulls the daughter out and uh, arrests her. And we say in the ad, this is what's going to happen. And people go, oh, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. It is going to happen. It is going to happen. And it's not going to stop there. They're going to throw your daughters, your sisters, mothers, childbearing persons in jail for the rest of their life for seeking abortion-related health care. That is what they're going to do. And then they're not going to stop there then they're going to go to contraception. They're already doing that. That is what they want to do. That is what they've been fighting for. And so what are we going to do about it? Are we going to stay silent? Again, when we talk about the media priorities, the media is not even covering this issue. This is a front page issue every single day. I haven't seen it anywhere. I haven't seen it anywhere. I've seen it on Twitter. I mean, I've seen like, you know, stuff about it, but it's not highlighted the way it should be. Like, it's not highlighted as like, like all these sorts of stories should be like, this is what is happening to this country. We are descending into an autocratic nation. This is what Donald Trump and his children and his advisors tried to do to overturn the results of our election and destroy our democracy. This is what is going to happen to women in the next few months, few years at this rate if Republicans are elected. But they're too afraid to offend Republicans. They're too afraid to offend Republicans when they are trying to criminalize contraception. So like Ben said, like we have to act. And whenever you see any of these crazy Republicans, whenever you see any of these crazy policies, whenever you see stories like this, I don't want you to be paralyzed with fear. That's not why we're telling it to you. We're telling it to you because you got to understand the true stakes that are out there. And you need to be able to inform your friends and your family about the true Mm -hmm. stakes that are out there. I think even even somebody who might even not, you know, be anti, who, someone who might be anti-abortion. I don't even think they want to see their friends, family members, uh, no, everybody it's... locked up, put in prison for life and want contraception off the shelves and contraception banned, made illegal. I mean, that's Handmaid's Tale style shit. And so every time you see these stories, instead of freaking out and going, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Go to vote.org, check your voter registration, try to register five people, try to register 10 people to vote, get the word out because we need to shock everybody. We need to shock the establishment this November and we need to pull off a win and we need to keep these handmaid's tale style politicians away from our bodies, away from women, away from everybody. And we need to move this country forward. And by the way, hat tip to everyone out there who, who, who was standing up using their Twitter accounts, using their social medias to throw outrage to Miss Herrera's story because it's absolutely, absolutely ridiculous. I mean, the district attorney in this case acted fast. They acted quickly. But who knows if people didn't speak up how much longer Mr. Herrera would have been behind bars for First or what happened the last. Exactly. And Brett, you say that the media is afraid to offend the Republicans, whoever these people are in power right now um, who call themselves Republicans. They're not. This is not a Republican party. This is these are radical right extremists who use the label Republican, who use the label conservative. These people are not conservative. They have no interest in a republic. (laughs) They're not Mm. Republican. These people want to create that Putin-style 
autocracy here in the United States, and we need to talk about it each and every day. And we'll talk about some more of these Senate races at the end of uh, at the end of the pod. But before that, let's bring in our guest, uh, Ben Hodges, the uh, former commanding general of the United States Army in Europe and the Pershing chair for the Center for European Policy Analysis. But before bringing in Ben Hodges, let's talk about some of our partners. Brett, let me tell you about Buck Mason. We all got you scared. Sorry, the, I get, re- I get scared, really excited. You scared the get, crap. You scared the crap out of me, Jordy. Really we all got our favorite go to is right. And I guess Jordy's favorite is Buck Mason. Mine, too. They got we got shirts, sweaters, jeans, the stuff you wear all the time. Well, I was getting dressed this morning. I realized that all of my go to's are from Buck Mason. And guess what? Even though the copy says I realized this morning, I did not realize just this morning. I've been knowing this for months, if not years, because I've been shopping at Buck Mason since at least 2015, 2016, because Buck Mason's clothes are second to none. They're timeless. They never go out of style. Everything I own fits great right out of the box and becomes my new favorite right away. Buck Mason makes all the essentials, shirts, jeans, jackets, all my go-tos and much more. I love the tailored look and fit of their t-shirts. Even after wearing them and putting them through wash after wash, they look just as good as when I first wore them. The curved hem tee is one of my favorites. It's what I'm wearing right now. Actually, I'm rocking the gray curved hem tee. GQ loves it as much as I do, calling it the best t-shirt in the game. Like I said, I've been going to Buck Mason for almost a decade now. I really just love it. I love the fit of the clothes right now. I'm also rocking the sweatpants. You guys got to get the sweatpants. The sweatpants are so comfortable and they're also the kind of sweatpants that you could like wear out and people don't give you looks because they look really nice and they're super comfortable. And I also got one of their shirts the other day too. I think it was called the Trail Traverse shirt, which was like a really light material for these hot days. You could go out and it looks great and it's light. I cannot tell you how much I love Buck Mason. And once you try Buck Mason, they will become your favorite go-tos too. So head over to buckmason.com slash Midas and get a free t-shirt with your first order. That's B-U-C-K-M-A-S-O-N.com slash M-E-I-D-A-S to get a free t-shirt with your first order. That's buckmason.com slash Midas, do it. Get your free T-shirt. This is like the greatest deal ever. I, I honestly, I, I, I placed my own order the other day. Again, I got another order of stuff, and I got the free tea. Get, get your free tea today. This podcast is also sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. This month, BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you to take care of your most important relationship, the one you have with yourself. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera. If you don't want to, it's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Give it a try. See why over 2 million people, including myself, use BetterHelp Online Therapy. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and Midas Touch listeners will get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash Midas. Go to B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash Midas, M-E-I-D-A-S. Go to that today. I'm telling you, sign up for it. You'll get great online therapy. You don't have to sit in the waiting rooms if you don't like that. And, you know, it'll definitely be helpful for you. It's definitely worthwhile and something that I do and focus on. And I do it once a week. So I hope you do it too. Betterhelp.com slash Midas. Without further ado, let's bring in our guest for our interview, Ben Hodges. We are so honored to be joined by Ben Hodges, former commanding general of the U.S. Army Europe, the Pershing chair for the Center of European Policy Analysis, SIPA. Ben, welcome. Great name, first of all. And Ben, welcome to the pod. (laughs) Only the smartest son in every family is named Ben. Oh, no. (laughs) 
I see how this interview is already starting up. We're already playing favorites. I see what's happening here. I got the back of the commanding general of U.S. Army Europe there, Brett. So I think that that is. <laughs> I'm going to lay down. I'm going to stand you. down. I'm standing down. Stand down, Brett and Jordy. So getting right into it, you know, you've been very outspoken recently about the importance of the next two weeks in the uh, war, the unlawful invasion of Ukraine by Russia. And you said that these next two weeks are the most decisive. And we hear that a lot. You know, these days are the most decisive. That days are the most. Why, though, are these two weeks coming up the most decisive in this war? Thanks, you guys, for giving me the opportunity here, by the way. I believe that the next two weeks are decisive because depending on what happens, what we do or don't do, that's we, the United States, we, the West, determines whether or not this is going to be a long, drawn-out, bloody stalemate that goes on for years, or do we take advantage of Russia's temporary vulnerability and break their back? That's, that's what I mean. And if we do that, then there's a chance for Ukraine to be in a much better position to start negotiations where, at a minimum, Russia is back to the pre-24 February line. The two weeks is not scientific, but it's based on my assessment of how much more ammunition Ukraine has to continue to hit important targets uh, of Russian targets and how long it's going to take Russia to get back up on their feet because they're going through this recon, what we call reconstitution. They're trying to rebuild all their battered units, um, solve their problems. And so there's about a two week window. So it's almost like a race, if you will. And here's the race, right? The reconstitution is Russia. They're trying to rebuild their forces. They're bringing in this new general also from Syria, but they're out there, you know, the, the convoys just basically hanging out there and people are saying, well, why isn't Ukraine just attacking the convoys that are exposed right now? And it's pretty much a mathematic equation in a way. Look, they just don't have the ammunition to knock the convoys, right? So a lot of it really is, is that the ammunitions need to be brought to Ukraine right now to get those convoys that are exposed. That's exactly what it is. The Ukrainians do not have the ability to reach out and light these convoys on fire. Uh, what they need is long-range rockets and artillery. They need air-delivered systems to be able to hit this. Um, th and this has my, been my frustration, that the United States, as much as we have provided, along with other allies, you don't get the sense of urgency that we want to win. And, and that's, I mean, we, the collective we, the U.S., not just keep Ukraine in the fight, but us win, which means smashing the Russians while they are trying to reconstitute. And we are just not providing the stuff that they need to help them reach out and touch Russian ships that are launching missiles into cities. Uh, you know, we're, the, the fiasco of not letting the Polish MiGs be transferred to the Ukrainians. I mean, just imagine if they had 10 or 12 more aircraft in the sky right now, that convoy, first of all, they wouldn't even dare to be out in daylight like that. But it's obvious that the Russians do not fear 
being attacked from the air. That's a problem. So why is it, though, that, you know, the collective we, the United States, the West, doesn't provide those basic steps? And what I hear is, well, if you do this or that, it may be provocative. Well, I'll tell you what's provocative. I mean, provocative is what happened in Bucha. I mean, that's provocative, you know, a genocide of people there. What's provocative is what Putin wants to do in Donbass. Provocative is getting general, the general, the butcher of Syria. They're all butchers, but getting that butcher to come in to basically do a genocide. So why is there this like delicate statecraft on the one hand, if you want to even call it that from the West, knowing that history repeats itself, knowing the issues of appeasement for people like Putin and his elk. Why is it as simple as, all right, just, just, just give them the planes, just, just get them the munitions. Well, uh, the failure of the United States to, and others to recognize who we're dealing with goes back decades. I mean, this is not a recent phenomenon. The previous administration was terrible. The administration before that was terrible when it comes to dealing with Russia and thinking that somehow we could uh, deal with them like another normal country. And they're not. And and this is this country, you know, they murdered 22,000 Polish officers at the beginning of World War II in an attempt to get rid of the elites that might help a new Polish state stand up. Um, they, they enabled Republic of Serbska, which murdered 8,000 Bosnian men and boys while European troops under a UN mandate stood by. And so we should not be surprised. And they use poison on their own opposition. So we should not be surprised that they are using medieval approach now to smash cities. But for some reason in Washington, but also in Berlin and London and other capitals, there is a belief that, oh, you know, if we let them have 25 year old MiGs, jets, that that will equal escalation to World War III, which I think is just a significant uh, exaggeration of the threat. Now, look, there's there's no pressure on me. I'm an old retired guy. The president has the pressure, literally the weight of the world on his shoulders. And so he has to be careful. I just think that the president and those around him and in many other capitals have exaggerated the, the threat, the risk of a World War III, whatever that means. It, it, it conjures up uh, images of, you know, Dr. Strangelove and the whole world being blown apart by uh, nuclear weapons. That's not going to happen. In fact, I don't think the Russians are going to use any nuclear weapons. Those, their nukes are only effective as long as they don't use them. And especially, I think you juxtapose that, you know, Dr. Strangelove image of Russia and then really the emperors without clothes image that we've now seen, I think, you know, from Russia saying that they have a million troops, which was grossly over exaggerated. It feels like it's probably more like half a million and that's not even operational, you know, style people. You know, it seems that all of the hype behind what the Russian military was, one of the big things that were exposed is that, you know, that's a military force that really is disorganized. It's a military force that has all of the problems that exist in dictatorial fascist countries where the generals are not giving the leader accurate information. And that's what's been exposed, if anything. Like, why not just take the decisive shot now and just get rid of them? What has been exposed also, and I would agree with uh, all that you've said, is decades of corruption inside the Ministry of Defense and inside the general staff and inside the entire Russian government. Shoigu, the Minister of Defense, has been there for at least eight years. I mean, he's Putin's guy. The, he's, the, he's the Minister of Defense. 
all these people there, they've been there for years. Um, and Putin, I mean, KGB guy, he, he, he's been the leader for 20 years. He knows about the corruption that's out there. Uh, that's part of how he keeps people loyal to him is allowing, tolerating, encouraging corruption. So the corruption um, should not be a surprise to him or anybody else. The result of that corruption is exactly what you said. And I'm glad you mentioned the troop numbers. 900,000, I doubt it. Probably closer to 500,000. Uh, this is an old tactic for uh, corruption in militaries where you say, I have X number of people on payroll, so I get the money to pay them, but you actually only have half that many. That's a good way to make a lot of money if you're in the ministry or in the general staff. And then when you think about troops that are uh, got equipment, as much money as they spend on modernization, they've got tires that are uh, not performing that they bought from the Chinese. They've got soldiers with rations that are expired. I mean, they, they were getting, they've been planning this operation for months and you hand your soldiers rations that are already years past their shelf life. I mean, this, these are all red flags of, of uh, corruption inside the ministry. What about the red flags of corruption here domestically, though? I mean, what goes through your mind? I mean, did you ever think there'd be a time period where you see kind of politicians who call themselves, who cloak themselves in the words conservative, but seem to be obsequious to Putin? Like, what goes through your mind with all of the years you've dedicated in the military, outside the military, to see stuff like that happen here from high-level politicians, again, who call themselves conservative? Never in my life did I imagine that the party of Reagan would also embrace Vladimir Putin in in any way or give one second of credibility to a claim that, well, these murders in Bucha, this this might be staged. We're not sure. I mean, just uh, that part was uh, is unfathomable to me. But also that um, we we do have a problem inside our own country with uh, people not being informed. I mean, either choosing to remain ignorant or choosing to listen to only one far left or far right, whatever it is, um, and, and not being engaged. We've, we've made ourselves vulnerable to Russian disinformation, where we people lose trust in our election system, in our court system. Uh, so this is a responsibility of our leaders, as well as parents, to make sure that uh, we protect those institutions. That doesn't mean everything's always sunny and, and flowery and that we always get along but that the institutions themselves are not questioned. That, that's, that's been one of the hardest things to, uh, to watch the last few years. And I think one of the institutions is the media, which you were just hinting at, that people are so siloed in their media networks that they watch. Um, there are some though that are just so, every media network has some sort of slant, but it seems like there are some now that are just, that are just so devoid of the truth entirely and are just purely propaganda. And, you know, I'm, uh, I'm talking about Fox News and OAN and Newsmax here that have taken in many stances a pro-Putin agenda. I mean, what do you think, what, what kind of responsibility do those sort of networks have right now in this kind of time of war? I'm obviously so old that I was around long before internet and uh, social media or that sort of thing. But I still remember my seventh grade teacher, Mrs. McKendry, uh, telling me, say, look, Ben, you got to have more than one source for your news. You can't read just 
one newspaper or one magazine or watch one channel. You, it's your duty to be informed, to inform yourself. And so I was, that was how I was, uh, was raised. And um, I, I think that uh, being a good citizen means more than just voting and paying taxes. It, it means being responsible and, and being involved uh, to, the, to the extent that's possible, given your family situation, your job, et cetera, et cetera. It really boils down to our elected officials also to set an example. Look, I, when President Trump would point to a, a, the bank of uh, all the journalists and say, it's all fake news. I mean, I, I thought that was a violation of his constitutional duty to protect, um, you know, the Constitution, which includes freedom of the press. And so, I mean, it's one thing to, to, to call out a journalist and say, hey, man, I read your last story. That was total BS. You know, you had it all wrong. That's one thing. But to, to point to all of them and say it's all fake, that that undermines confidence that people have in the very important pillar of uh, our democracy, which is a free media that that is annoying as hell, uh, that that uh, can be very irritating, but nonetheless, it's an essential part of it. Was wondering your thoughts as a former commanding general watching the events of January sixth, and what do you make of all all that we've seen since then from the kind of immediate reactions after of leadership saying this was a horrible event to almost a week later, or in some cases, days later, starting to defend it and putting out fake news quite literally of what actually happened that day. And now the people who have doubled and tripled down that January 6th was actually a peaceful protest and, and using that as, as an example that that was patriotism that day and not an insurrection against the United States government. I had some dear friends that that uh, that have commented on on that is like, well, you know, we we don't know the name of the person who shot the the one that was trying to get inside. I mean, questioning whether or not it, were these really Antifa people in there that blended in, and, and I don't know how how you could question what you're looking at when it's happening right in front of you, and when it's so obvious what's happening when they're um, hammering the shit out of, I'm um, sorry, when they're assaulting policemen. Um, somebody walking through our capital with a rebel flag, um, these kind of things. How could anybody want to be associated with that? And and also, it was disappointing to see uh, that there were quite a few um, either retired military or former military or some in the reserves that were joined in this. Because you know, we take a uh, we take an oath to the Constitution of the United States over and over and over and, and to reinforce the notion of the constitution. And so to see somebody uh, doing that, that had any military background was very concerning. I don't even want to think about what would have happened if they had managed to get their hands on the vice president or members of Congress, um, because you know, a mob, once it starts, I mean, it, it can very quickly get out of control. Um, the reaction of people since then who have backtracked on what they said at the moment also, um, that, that does not build confidence in, um, of, of people in their elected officials. Now, uh, the good news is that the January 6th commission is doing its job. And uh, I, I'm not a lawyer, but as I've watched what they've done, the way they have done this, it's very clever. I mean, it's like each day there's a little drip that comes out. Right. And so, and also they've used the approach, you get all the low hanging fruit first, 
so that the people who are the ultimate target start wondering what all do they have? I mean, they have to start worrying that like all the, the, the people around them who the president and his inner circle threw under the bus immediately, you know, what will they have said and provided so that when it does get down to the, to the final tier of targets, if you will, what do they have? And I think honestly, uh, for the good of our Republic, uh, and also for our image, you know, I live in Frankfurt, Germany, and, and I have people all the time saying, what in the heck is going on? I mean, most of your, most, uh, professional Europeans either went to school in the States, they have friends there, they have business there, they send their kids there. And while they may criticize thing, U.S. policy, the expectation of America as an icon of trying to get democracy right was something that they always admired. And so they're, they're dismayed now by what, by what happened on January the 6th, as am I. And what do you think justice looks like for the good of the country? Well, I think that every single person that was directly involved or indirectly involved in what happened on January 6th uh, is charged, convicted, and, and gets the right sentence, whatever that is. And that um, people that have tried to hide behind um, some misdirection or uh, felt that they were above this, yeah, they, they should um, be studied for years and years and years as examples of what can go wrong when the voters, when the voters are not active in our democracy. I mean, this, this is about democracy, which is, which is not easy. It's not a ballet. I mean, it's hard. You know, we had a massive civil war in our own country. Um, but, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I always I always trust in the American people. Um, we just we seem to have a hard time getting there <laughs> sometimes. Yeah, well, uh, democracy is hard, as you said. I mean, and, and that's the I guess the lore of autocracy is that it's easy. You have one person who could just unilaterally say what it is, and and that's what it is. Uh, switching subjects for a second, um, we're seeing a small amount of military members challenging these vaccine mandates, uh, refusing to take it, challenging being separated and discharged, actually wanting to be deployed without vaccines. I mean, to me, as an outsider, I, military has taken vaccines forever, like going back to George Washington. So is this one of the strangest things that you have seen? What is your take on all this? And and these also these judges challenging President Biden as the commander in chief, challenging his authority to mandate vaccines in the military. I was uh, astounded with the first time I heard that it was not mandatory to get vaccinated back over a year ago. I mean, I, I couldn't believe that was even a choice. The only choice I've ever had in 38 years in the army was left arm <laughs> or right arm. I mean, not... <laughs> Uh, not whether or not I was going to get uh, vaccinated. And I never, I never questioned it. You know, it was never like, gee, I wonder if the doctor knows more right. than I do about, you know, what I need to go into Iraq or Afghanistan or Panama or wherever it was I was going. So I just was astounded. I can't imagine how, uh, how could you, uh, if, if the purpose of the military is to be ready to fight and win a nation's wars, that means you have to be ready to go on very short notice. And, and so readiness is always the top priority. Well, how can you put four soldiers inside of a tank or, uh, you know, three or four aviators inside a Chinook or how, whatever the, the complement of a submarine is, 100 or 150 sailors inside a submarine and have three or four of them walking around like, hey, man, you know, I didn't have to do that. That, that, that kills readiness and it also undermines trust. So if a soldier or a sailor or airman says, 
I'm not doing it. We have we have ways to separate people just for like somebody else that refuses an order. And then lastly, going back to Russia's unlawful invasion in Ukraine, how does it end for Putin? You know, you have President Biden on record saying this guy can't remain in power. Now, the administration tried to walk that back and then he walked back the walk back. Uh, how, how do you think it ends for Putin? Well, badly. It's going to end bad. He's, he's never going to be welcome or invited anywhere uh, again, except, you know, maybe North Korea or, um, you know, someplace like that. I mean, it's just um, I, I can't even imagine him or Lavrov or any of these other characters being welcomed back into polite society in Europe uh, or the United States or, or most other places. If he's lucky, he gets to live, live to old age somewhere. I don't think he's going to be that lucky. I mean, Russia has a pretty violent history. And uh, I was proud that the president said said what he said. And yeah, yeah of course, people, so wet themselves. Uh, people were wetting their pants when he said that. But, you know, <laughs> when, when President Reagan said, called Russia the evil empire, called the Soviet Union the evil empire, there were diplomats around him and Europeans that almost fainted. Oh, you can't talk like that. But it's exactly kind of the unifying uh, force uh, concept. And so I think for, for our president to say what that guy's doing, he does not deserve to be the leader of a country. He, he need, cannot remain in power. And he's a war, he's a war criminal. And, and yeah, maybe that was not 100% elegant in terms of a legal construct. But if you're the president of the United States, what you say matters. And it, it helps shape uh, actions and thought. And I'm glad he said it. And how about that? You know, about two or three days later, it comes out and everybody's like, God dang, what a war criminal is, is, is Putin. How mm -hmm. is he even walking around? Now, we are seeing and hearing a lot more in the last few days about the Russian population. Clearly, they're not a bunch of adults that have no idea what's going on. I mean, uh, I would say at least half of their population is uh, completely hooked on state run media. But the other half is not. But yet there still is a lot of support inside Russia for what's going on. And they have, they have bought into this notion. And so um, this is not just a crazy guy. He, he's got a lot of support. And, and so we've got our work cut out from a long-term standpoint to uh, reach the Russian population. They have suffered as much from Putin's regime as, as most of their neighbors. I mean, life sucks inside Russia if you're not in downtown Moscow or St. Petersburg, it's not very good. Just say this, Ben, we have a, one of the things we've been lucky here to have is a really, really, really big audience. And sometimes I find on these interview style shows, the interviewers drive, you know, these things, but I have the commanding, former commanding general for the U.S. Army in Europe on, and sometimes I just need to shut up and, and listen, you know, and, and, and hear just what your, you know, what your thoughts are, what's going on. I'm sure you go on all of these shows and there's just some questions that you don't get asked. There's just something that you've really wanted to convey to a large audience and say, can you stop asking me these? Just let me speak for a second. So <laughs> if someone were to frame the question the way I just did to you, like, what's the overall message that you have, you know, to the United States right now, or, or even to the world, to a big audience. So uh, Brett and Jordy were wrong. You really are smart. I mean, that, that was a very well, uh... <laughs> look, what is so frustrating when I hear people say, why do we care? I mean, why, why do we need to worry about Ukraine? And so much of the debate about Ukraine over the past several years has been as if it's an island. But it's not an island. The reason we care about Ukraine is not only because of its 
amazing history and, and culture and, and people, but it's because of where it sits on the map. The, the Black Sea region is an area that's not very well known to most of us. Honestly, until a few years ago, I didn't fully understand the significance of it. But when you can step back from the map and think about the Black Sea, we have three NATO allies there, Turkey, Romania, and Bulgaria. We have treaty obligations to help protect them. So that's one reason it's strategically important. Number two, the Black Sea region is our buffer against Iran. I mean, Iran is on the south side, southeast side of Turkey. So having the Black Sea that is stable, secure with allies and partners helps keep Iran further and further away. It's also the third reason it's important is because Russia needs it for everything it does in the Caucasus, which is Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan, everything that Russia does in the Balkans, specifically uh, helping out uh, Serbia, but also causing problems in other countries. And then they use it, the Black Sea is their launching pad for their support of the Assad regime, which used chemicals on its own people and put millions of refugees on the road into Europe, which seriously undermined uh, European the European civil society and politics uh, for decades. So it's a place where we have to compete. And then finally, there's huge economic potential. The, the Black Sea region is the economic corridor between Europe and Eurasia. If we help develop Ukraine and Georgia and Romania, the, the prosperity of this region would be significant. The other two choices for East-West movement is to go through Russia or through Iran. So there's strategic reasons to be involved and for Ukraine to be successful. And then finally, of course, if Russia defeats Ukraine, if they are able to crush Ukraine, then that, that's, not, that's not the end of the day. I mean, they're going to keep going. They're going to go to Moldova. They're going to go after the rest of Georgia and they're going to be a threat. So this appeasement, if somehow we end up with a settlement that's less than what it should be, which means Russia back to the pre-24 February line, then they'll just wait a couple of years and, and we'll all be having the same conversation again. See, that was the best question of the podcast by me. <laughs> I, I, what if that was the move, Brett, that well, I just have like the most qualified people like Ben Hodges, like join the podcast. And instead of just asking questions, I just go, Ben, the floor. Floor, the floor is yours. Yeah. <laughs> but in all seriousness, Ben, ben we really appreciate you. You set a great tone and, you know, to listen to somebody ramble for 20, 30 minutes is hard, but the way you guys do it, I, uh, I appreciate the opportunity you gave me. Ben Hodges, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. We hope you'll come back and join us again. Thanks, guys. So great having someone as experienced as Ben Hodges walk us through <laughs> what's going on in Ukraine. It's truly incredible. I mean, the fact that we're able to speak to a former commanding general of the U.S. Army of all of Europe on the show. I mean, it's it's truly it's 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 awesome. It was so honored to have him on the show. Absolutely. So let's talk about Jordy. This is your home. This is your neck of the woods. Mm -hmm. This is Pennsylvania. Trump endorsed Dr. Oz <laughs> um, in the Senate primary race in Pennsylvania. And he chose Dr. Oz over David McCormick. And uh, David McCormick was the former CEO of Bridgewater Associates. In many ways, David McCormick tried to promote himself as kind of a Glenn Youngkin type figure, you know, former private equity, um, QAnon adjacent, but tries to portray himself as like having uh, business acumen. And look, I mean, being the head of Bridgewater, by the way, Bridgewater, when I, when I, Remember earlier in the pod when I talked about different funds, uh -huh. like 
Bridgewater's like an example of like a fund that exists. Yeah, the, where, not only a fund that exists, but I think they are the largest fund that exists. And he was the CEO of that. No, there's no, I mean, uh, they have about, as of March, 2021, they had about $140 billion in assets under management, which is definitely a very large uh, fund. 70 MBSs. Right. 70 um, Kushners. <laughs> Uh, Took me a but, second, but I got but, that. And, and David McCormick's uh, wife, Dina Powell, worked for Trump. She was a former counselor to the president. Dude, she was the deputy national security advisor in the Trump administration. So, so naturally, MAGA world all thought that McCormick was going to be Trump's endorsement here. And I think McCormick also thought uh, that he was going to be Trump's endorsement. And didn't Trump have them all show up at like Mar-a-Lago too? And like, yeah, McCormick went to Mar-a-Lago like a few days ago to kiss the ring as like just in this weirdo thing that they all do. They fly down to Mar-a-Lago to kiss the ring of Trump and then they leave and then they pray that he endorses them. But two or three days later, what does Trump do? He endorses Dr. Oz, which sets MAGA world ablaze, sets the right wing, drives them fucking crazy. Well, I want to I want to go back and keep talking about McCormick for one second. But so the Oz endorsement is so bizarre because McCormick is a Pennsylvania guy. The one thing that I've absolutely learned about living here for the last two and a half years is that Pennsylvanians love Pennsylvanians. Now, McCormick did move to Connecticut to start his hedge fund. So it was a layup for Trump to endorse McCormick. I mean, it would have been very, very difficult for a Democratic candidate to win if McCormick got the Trump endorsement. Now, I'm not saying it's over by any means. Like, you still have to get out there and vote, Pennsylvanians. But it is a shock. A shockwave hit Pennsylvania. All citizens across this great commonwealth that he endorsed Oz, a Hollywood elitist, over one of their own. People are furious about that. Yeah. But it's also like, it's so typical Trump. Like, of course, he's going to endorse the celebrity guy who's like him, who's like a fraud, who's a quack, who's, who's basically Trump, but for like doctors, like, like, of course, he's going to do that guy instead when you look at it in retrospect. But the weird thing to not the weird thing, but the funny thing to me is how all these right wingers, they like are so close to getting it, but so far away when they start placing the blame about Trump on this, like you have Mo Brooks out there who also famously recently just got rejected by Trump. Trump. And he goes, this is happening because Trump surrounded himself by staff who are on McConnell's payroll and hostile to the MAGA agenda. Everybody telling Trump who to endorse in primaries works for the swamp. They played him again. You have right wing radio host Eric Erickson saying it's like Donald Trump's staff is sabotaging Trump by convincing him to make the worst possible endorsements. You have Breitbart News is Joel Pollack. This endorsement could divide MAGA in the only way that matters. He could lose America first conservatives over it. Roger Stone, wait. President Trump endorsed this guy. It's like everybody seems to blame the people around Trump, but not Trump himself. It's always, oh, his advisors are advising him wrong. But it's never like, oh, so you're saying that Trump is easily duped? You're saying that Trump is so easily duped by anybody in his ear, by the last person around him. That's that's your argument that you want to make about this guy who you adore so much, that he is so easily fooled and that he's a, a, just a moron. That's that that's like your best argument for the guy. Oh, he's just an idiot. He's just listening to who's ever in his ear last. He's just a moron. I mean, if he if he did this on his own, he would never do this. If, if you're a podcast listener listening in Pennsylvania too, you know that the Oz commercials and the McCormick commercials are just batshit crazy. And why they're so crazy, too, is because they all kissed the ring to Donald Trump. Now, McCormick, 
his strategy is going to have to change. He's going to have to now not become the MAGA candidate that he's been portraying himself to be. So it's going to be interesting. And just a personal anecdote for me, my extended family here, they're not all Democrats. You know, everyone I speak to around here in Pennsylvania that, that I know, and they have told me already that they would rather vote for Fetterman, one of their own, than vote for Dr. Oz as quote unquote Hollywood elitist, because that's how McCormick has painted Oz in all of his campaign videos. I mean, this is truly truly a miscalculation from Donald Trump. And I just love to see it. Now it's not over. Get out there and vote Pennsylvania. And I'm going to do something that we don't typically do here. Fetterman is the guy that we need to win that Senate seat. There are a lot of great candidates. Fetterman, Braddock Mayor. Favorites over here. Braddock Mayor for five years, zero homicides while he was mayor. The bridge collapsed here. In Pennsylvania, he was the first guy on the scene wearing shorts. Why? Because he was going for a jog in the neighborhood. He's a neighborhood guy. Instead of going home and putting on a suit and being all politics, glam in this. No, he went straight to the bridge collapse to see what was going and how he could help. He is Pennsylvania thick and thin through and through. He is our guy. Well, I'll just say, um, yeah, rooting for Fetterman, rooting for Connor Lamb, rooting for Malcolm Kenyatta. Whoever gets that nomination, you know, I will back 150%. Um, and I think this all, all in general, this is very good for Democrats, uh, Trump's endorsement. And also, you know, you have the added benefit of Oz is the, honestly, he's, he's a quack and he's a fraud, but he's the least crazy out of all those candidates also, which, you know, is, is, isn't the worst thing also to acknowledge that at least the alternative is also not one of these total and complete psychopaths. I mean, he's still a fake and a fraud and, you know, should never be anywhere near government. But well, you know. <laughs> I mean, we look, you look at Georgia, you look at Georgia, Brett, with uh, Herschel Walker running. Oh, against my God. Senator Warnock. And you have Herschel Walker, who like repeatedly like put a gun to his wife's head. And I mean, we can go we could go into all the personal attacks, which we will at a later time. But like when he's asked the most basic of questions, he literally just responds with gibberish. Yeah, and uh, I mean, yeah, the, the, I mean, like just thinking about like getting answers, uh, getting questions, and being prepared with answers. Like at the, I genuinely don't think he knows what he's running for. No, right, I, I, but yeah. Ben, but Ben, ultimately, the sad part is you're right. He still has a four point lead in the latest polls over Warnock. So that's why you have to, listeners, Georgia, you have to bring that 2020 energy to 2022, because Raphael Warnock needs that seat. You cannot let Herschel Walker get that seat yeah. by all means. Absolutely not. Warnock's been like the most inspiring, like most incredible senator of all time. Also, like his speeches on voting rights. He's he's really just such a fighter for Georgia. But honestly, when I look at this poll, I'm not I don't like freak out that poll. I, I, it's still very early. I don't freak out when I look at these polls. It just shows us that we got work to do. And the second that people actually start hearing from Walker, I think these polls are going to shift pretty drastically once they hear that he really can't even speak a coherent sentence. Well, and let, let, well let's let's listen to uh, Herschel Walker on the fake business channel. Tell us what changed in the last 14 months since Warnock won that seat? You know, what, what a change is where do you start? 
you know, where do you start at? What has changed is, uh, you know, we've got an administration that, that, that they're not leaders. They're almost, uh, they're, they're waiting to, they're more reactive rather than proactive. And what I mean by that is, you know, one of the first thing they did, and I think people need to know this, is they decided that they were going to give up our energy by him going out, giving up our energy. And now we're not energy independent anymore, which started the whole downfall. But I don't even think he knows what he's, what he's saying. You know, that's the issue. I mean, that, and that's look, the, the, the choice is very clear. It's no longer like a two party system that has different ideas of how to better help America and how to help our democracy. You have one party right now in the Democrats, which is a bigger 10 party that supports democracy at its core, that supports the people and that, uh, you know, he and, and supports American ideals here and abroad. On the other hand, you got people on the radical right who I, it's really sad. It's really pathetic. And it is our mission at Midas that we're going to keep highlighting this every single day. And we're going to win in 2022. When I say we are going to win in 2022, America is going to win in 2022. America is going to win in 2024. We're, we're better than this. I know we're better than this. And when people get the truthful, accurate information, they're not lied to, they know also. And so we just got to keep at it each and every day. Special thanks to our sponsors, Buck Mason and BetterHelp. Uh, go check it out and use those promo codes, Midas. And special thanks to our guest, former commanding general of the U.S. Army in Europe, Ben Hodges, who serves now as the Pershing chair at the Center for European Policy Analysis. We will see you next time on the Midas Touch podcast. Shout out to the Midas Midas!